Gracious Father, thank you that our sin, which was a crimson stain, is now washed totally and utterly and as white as snow by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your word says that we are to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt us, casting all our anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Lord, we gather in the name of Christ Jesus, and we worship a God this morning who cares for us, just like we sang. Jesus, you are enough, and we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Beautiful weekend. Beautiful weekend. Well, as always, it is always a privilege to stand before you to preach the Word. And if you've got your Bibles, grab them and turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. I'll read the first couple of verses. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Gracious Father, this morning, help me to preach your word and help us all to receive it, to receive your truth with soft hearts, and that is only by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been following the Bible reading plan, you obviously know that we are in the only natural place you can go after 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and that is the the book of Judges. (laughs) I mean, that's the only place you can go, right? (laughs) So this will be interesting. So now before we look forward to these first couple of chapters, I think it would be beneficial to offer some guidelines for how we're to interpret and understand this book. So we're in a different genre now, and by this I mean we're in a different part of the Bible with a different writing style and methods of communication. So when we were in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which were epistles written by Paul, it had a very specific writing style. You know, it was a greeting, and then there was doctrinal encouragement and exhortations and corrections, and then, hey, now do this in response, and then he signed off. So that was kind of the the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. Instead of an epistle, though, we have a narrative story, which was written in another time to another people, but also for us today to read and understand. So a good way to look at the whole book of Judges is that this is a sermon in narrative form. This is a sermon in a story. So that means the author is intentionally telling us something through the unfolding of a factual, historical story. This isn't fiction. 
And this isn't just a history book either. We can so easily come to the Old Testament thinking, here's just a list of facts. They're nothing less than facts. However, it's much more. It's much more. So this is like a history sermon, I guess you could say. And so the question we should be asking ourselves in the next couple of weeks as we continue to examine the text together is what is the author intending to tell us? What is the author intending to tell us? So that could be the question you can write down maybe in your journal for the next couple of weeks when we're in Judges. And I also think it will be beneficial to remind ourselves where we're at in Israel's history. Since we're kind of jumping in the book of Judges, there's a lot more that happened in history, in Israel's history, in biblical history, before we get to this point. So real quick, here's an ultimate crash course that's not even going to touch anything other than that Joshua has led the, <coughs> excuse me, has led the Israelites already across the Jordan into Canaan, and they had started the long conquest to take the land that the Lord had promised them. So briefly, look at me in Joshua chapter 24. I'm going to read a couple verses here that will set the context of what we're going to look at. Starting at verse 14, chapter 24 in Joshua. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after, you have, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So here we have Joshua saying, Whom will you serve this day? Israelites say, We're going to serve the Lord. Joshua says, You can't. But they say, Oh, we can and we will. And in verse 26, Joshua says, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. (coughs) And so that was going to be a witness against the people. You said you want to serve the Lord? I'm going to write this down in the book of the law of God. Here is this visual witness against you if you were to turn and do otherwise. And these are also some of the last words that we hear from Joshua before he dies. And the Israelites have pledged to serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord, they say. 
And so the book ends, the book of Joshua ends in a warning and optimism. The Lord will be against you if you turn against me, he says. I will be against you. And the Israelites declare, we will serve you, Lord, and you alone. That's how it ends. So when we look at the beginning of our text in Judges, the first two verses, we see the same optimism with the Israelites saying, we're going to serve you, Lord, you. First two verses says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So here we see at the beginning of the book of Judges that the Israelites are seeking the Lord's will. They go to the Lord. Lord, whom shall we serve? Or or, who shall we go up against? Who is going to go? And then we have the Lord replying. So it starts really good. The Israelites seeking after the Lord and the Lord replying. That's how it should be. So then Judah goes up with Simeon and the Lord gives the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. If you read on, good so far, right? Seems to be good. But let's read on. Verses five and seven, chapter one. Then they found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. First of all, ouch. I'd say thumbs up, but that might not be good. Maybe thumbs down. Nub down, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, that's... uh, didn't expect to read that in the Bible, thinking, oh, there's an, an account of someone getting their thumbs and their big toes cut off. But, like I said, this is a sermon in narrative form. So this isn't just the author thinking, this is kind of funny, this guy got his thumb and his toes cut off, I'm going to write this down and we're all going to get a, a good laugh out of it. No, it's in here for a reason. It's in here for a reason. So we have here in this account... Already, the narrator showing the start of the failure of Israel. How so? So the first main point I want us to look at is the canonization of Israel. The canonization of Israel. That's kind of like a tongue twister almost. And I would argue that's the main theme, <coughs> excuse me, the main theme of the book of Judges. And maybe the main message of the whole book of Judges is a wake-up call, a wake-up call to turn back to the Lord. So first there's this mention of Adoni Bezek getting his thumbs and big toes cut off. So instead of the narrator commenting on this further, he allows the Canaanite king to speak. And here we learn that this pagan king did the same thing to his enemies. And he says that God is paying him back for what he did. But he isn't saying necessarily that Yahweh is paying him back. He's just saying, you know, my gods or the gods. You know, the gods have done this to me. He's not necessarily referencing the God of Israel. And we might think, well, what's the big deal? Because kind of got what he deserved, right? 
He's been cutting off thumbs and big toes from his enemies. It's only fitting that he would too. I mean, right? What's the big deal? Here's the problem. We see that the Israelites are using the same ethics as the Canaanites. They were imitating pagan people that they were to utterly and totally keep separate from and destroy. It was God's ethic that they were to follow, not the pagans. Not those around them, but God's ethic. And to go further, they take this Adoni Bezek, which also could have been translated the Lord of Bezek, so the king of Bezek. They took him to Jerusalem, and he dies there. So we have an account of them taking a captive, and he probably died either from his wounds, maybe getting infected, or maybe even they tortured him or something, uh, mistreatment. And either way, however he died, it's problematic because you you have to ask the question, what is Israel doing in the first place? Taking captives. God has said, utterly purge the enemy. Purge them. But the compromises continue. So read on, Judah and Simeon, very successful in their conquest. There's some more victories in battle, but then this happens. And this is when Israel seems to hit the first big brick wall. Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. You know, I've read through the book of Judges many times in my life, and this verse always seemed to confuse me because it says, and the Lord was with them. And if you didn't know what was coming next, you could probably guess and say, and they had great victory, and there was wonderful things that happened because the Lord was with them. So I was confused because the next verse is saying, and they failed. They failed. Just said that the Lord was with them, and they fail. How? And this is not an account of the Lord failing because the Lord can never fail. So this is not that account. But this is an account of the failure of who? Of Judah. The failure of Judah to obey. God said he was with them, yet their hearts were too weak to combat the enemy because they had chariots of iron. I think we can think of a similar account in uh, David and Goliath, how the Israelites were afraid. And there was this big, giant Goliath, and they were all afraid. And the chariots of iron would have been uh, very dangerous. I mean, this, this wasn't like um, something small. I mean, chariots of iron, chariots coming against infantry would utterly obliterate in human standards. That was very uh, deadly technology at that time. So this wasn't like they were afraid for no reason, except that God says, I'm with you. So what the response should have been was, Lord, we will go out and fight for you because you said you were with us. How can we fail? Because who can stand against your holy might? If God is for us, who can be against us? But no, we have an account of a failure because they judged the battle according to human standards, forgetting the one who fights for them. 
verse 21, we see another compromising, another compromise with the Benjamites, failing to drive out the Jebusites and decided to rather live with the enemy instead of purging them. <coughs> verses 22 and 26, we see another major compromise. Read a couple of verses, 24 and 25. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. So the Israelites thought they were being good tacticians. This is a good strategy. They're going to work out a good deal. They saw this guy coming out of the city. Hey, maybe he knows a secret way in. We can kind of sneak in there and take the city by surprise. And on a human level, you can see how this is, you know, pretty wise, right? You can, this is pretty smart. You know, if we can sneak into the city and, you know, have to, don't have to siege the city or however it's going to look, this is a lot easier if we can find another way in. So on a human level, okay, they're, they're thinking here maybe. But remember again, this is not what God said to do. They're not supposed to cut deals. The Israelites then destroy the city and then they let the man go and his family. And then what happens? That man and his family, they go build another city. Well, the city they just destroyed was called Luz. The man and his family go and then they build another city called Luz. So it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You whack one, you missed it, another one pops up over here. So it's like they didn't do anything at all. They destroyed the city, another one pops up over here. This wasn't good strategy. This was direct disobedience to the Lord. And the compromises and failures don't stop. Verses 27 through 36 is rather depressing. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. They put them to forced labor. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. And the Canaanites lived among them. And they subjected them to forced labor. And Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. And Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Failure after failure after failure after failure. The Lord said he was with them, and yet every account shows they did not succeed. The enemy resisted. This is not a failure of God. This is a failure of obedience. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, Israel then receives the rebuke and judgment from God. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. <clears throat> and as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there 
to the Lord. And that is a proper response to that judgment, is to weep. Israel's failure has to do directly with their decision to choose their own way, their own way forward, instead of listening to the Lord, who has repeatedly said he was with them. They made covenants and compromises with the enemy that God said to destroy. To destroy. Not make sneaky deals. Not fear. They failed to obey and to trust the Lord. And as I already mentioned, the main theme of the book of Judges is the Canaanization of Israel. So Israel was looking more like the nations around them than they were according to the people of God. How God has said, this is how you're to look. This is how you're to act. This is what you're to say. This is what you're to do. Instead, they start to look like the nations around them. And this absolutely has direct application for the church today, does it not? Does it not? There's a commentator, Daniel Block. He says this, evidences of the canonization of the church are everywhere. Our preoccupation with material prosperity, which turns Christianity into a fertility religion, our syncretistic and aberrant forms of worship, our refusal to obey the Lord's call to separation from the world, our divisiveness and competitiveness, our moral compromises, as a result of which Christians and non-Christians are often indistinguishable, our propensity to displace thy kingdom come with my kingdom come, our eagerness to fight the Lord's battles with the world's resources and strategies, and our willingness willingness to stand up and defend perpetrators of evil instead of justice. And this comment was made in 1999. Imagine what more could be said today about Christians and the church, especially the American church today. How we look more like the world in so many cases than we do like the people of God. Why? Because we don't trust his word. He has given us his word and says, this is what will work. And yet man thinks we can add to it because apparently the word of God is not effective enough. We need to come up with different methods. You know, we need to do all this to bring people to church. We need to do, to, do this to worship. We need to, to, to do this because this isn't enough. And we see in the story with the spies, they snuck out the city and they said, we're gonna make a deal with you and we'll come in the city and destroy it if you show us the way and we'll let you go. Well, like I said, on a human level, seems very wise. And so if we're not listening to the Lord, on, if we're talking about the church today, there's many things that will seem wise to man's eyes, but direct disobedience to his word. Because we don't know it or because we don't trust it. Back to the text. Here's another reality that the author of Judges states that leads to devastating consequences which is the second point I want us to look at, is the failure to pass on the faith. The failure to pass on the faith or discipleship by the priests and the fathers of Israel. Chapter two, verses six through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel 
went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, <coughs> north of the mountain of Gash. In all the generation also, and uh, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The generation that saw all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel had passed away. And the generation that came up after them did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for all of them. And there's two observations, I think, that could be made from this. And the first one is the generation that knew the Lord failed to pass on the faith in any meaningful way. In other words, they failed to disciple the next generation. The priests failed to do their duty to worship and sacrifice and point people to God. And the fathers failed to teach their families. The second observation is the upcoming generation also rejected the way of the Lord and did not receive truth when truth was given. Don't have to turn here. You can just listen. But Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9 and verse 12. <coughs> you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery very evident that Israel failed in this. They failed. And my question for us today is, are we a generation that is failing in this as well? Are we a people that is failing to pass on the faith in a meaningful way to our children, to the next generation? Like I said, Israel failed, the priests failed, and the fathers failed. So for a moment, fathers in the room, fathers of households, how are we passing on the faith to our children? How is this happening? Back in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall teach them, <coughs> you shall teach them diligently to your children diligently which means this is not something that's happening by you're just standing there and I'm just going to live a Christian life and that's good enough it is intentional and diligently and how this can look is family worship family devotions where the fathers in the household come together 
or gather together their family and they sit down and they open the Bible together and they read and they sing and they pray with the family. Because if we think that just simply living your Christian life in front of your kids is enough, that is not true. It is utterly important that you live your Christian lives in front of your kids. But if we just do that without intentionally teaching them the faith, we're missing something. We're missing something. Because the world is also discipling our kids. The world will do this if the fathers and mothers in the household do not. And drift never goes towards positive. So if this is not happening within our households, if fathers are not teaching the children the faith, the drift is always going to go towards abandoning the Lord in sin or rejecting the Lord. And the same could be said for mothers and grandparents, those who have families. How can you intentionally be pouring into the next generation? Intentionally. Even, even those that singles, finding someone to put themselves under so that they can be poured into, or, or older, if they're older singles, to go pour into someone else. To be intentional about teaching the works of Christ and what he has done. I was talking with uh, a friend of mine, Seth Hostetler, and uh, last Wednesday after prayer, and he was talking to me about family worship and how he had started doing this, and um, it's, it's a topic I enjoy talking about as well. And so he was telling me, um, his wife Amanda, and he has three kids at home, uh, Charlie, Peter, and May. May's still a baby, and then I think, I don't know how old Charlie is, four or five, six or seven, <laughs> and <clears throat> Charlie's, or Peter's a little bit young, younger than that. Anyway, so they're still young and at home. <clears throat> and he's like, well, I really felt this burden to start something. And um, he decided, okay, well, let's start something. But he felt like, I, I just don't know where to start. So he was talking with Amanda, and Amanda's like, well, just start somewhere. Just somewhere. So, okay. So he found some type of curriculum or something where they would open the Bible together, they'd read something, and then there'd be a couple questions. And they would, just would talk and then pray. You know, it's not like a 45-minute thing. It was maybe a 15, 20-minute thing. And um, he started to do this, and he was telling me this. He's like, well, the, the key was just to start somewhere. I'm like, okay. Well, one night they got home, and they were really tired, and so he just sent the kids to bed. And um, his oldest, or his youngest son was, you know, he put them in bed, and he goes, well, Dad, well, what about Bible time? <laughs> and he, his heart was broken and he felt convicted, you know, because he was tired and just wanted to go to bed. And, and the point isn't that every single day you have to do this, you know, but the pattern was set. So even the young minds had expected, hey, Bible time, that's what they called it, Bible time. But Seth is intentionally teaching his children, going through the Bible, going through the Bible, and this might sound like a bold statement because it is, but fathers with children at home, with wife, one wife at home, um, if you are not 
doing this. This is outside the will of God. This is something that needs to be done. And what Seth said was he didn't know where to start, but he just started somewhere. So the key is not just to have this grand, you know, Spurgeon-esque devotion where you have all these wonderful insights. It's, it's not that. It's you open the Bible up together. You read a chapter or two, and you have some questions, and you talk about it. And then you pray, and maybe sing a hymn together. You start there. And it's amazing what happens with all the questions that come up and the, and the things that you get to talk about. And uh, we're actually um, expecting our first and so um, I've always looked at family worship because that was something I was interested in, but I, didn't ha- I just had Lindsay. So it was a family of two. And um, then she's now pregnant. I thought, well, thank you, Lord. So now we get to put a lot of this into practice. But the thing is, we're not going to wait until the baby comes to put it into practice. It's, we've started, the pattern is set. We sit down after supper, and it, it, this is just how we do it. We sit down after supper, or generally after supper, and we just read the Bible together, a chapter, and we have a little book that said, um, Family Worship Bible Guide. And you open it up after we read the chapter, and it has two or three observations it makes with a couple questions, and we talk about it, and then we pray. But we want that pattern set now so that when the kids come, when the kids come, that is what is already in motion. Somehow, in some way, the Israelites, their fathers failed to do this. And this isn't just something that we Christians have just made up, as I clearly just read in Deuteronomy. This is expected. This is expected, and this has not faded away. Where the Lord expects us to pass on the faith intentionally. And I want to encourage you, if you are not doing this, to start. Start tomorrow. Start tonight. Pray about it and turn. Another way, as I mentioned, the failure of the priests, the failure of the priests in Israelites' time. You know, because there's the book of Exodus and Leviticus numbers and all the things God had given the Israelites to do especially within the temple and the sacrifices and when we get into the book of Judges we don't hear anything of that which all that was to point towards God and Christ so the priests had failed to do that and the direct implication today is that yes the fathers should be doing that today they should be pointing their children teaching their children not having to be grand theologians, opening the Bible up, teaching their children. And the, the pastors, the preachers today should be encouraging people to do this, but also to preach the word of God. To preach. Because the gospel must go afresh every single generation. Every generation. And if we don't teach and preach and share the gospel In each new generation, that generation turns away from the Lord. And we can look at this as small as family units or churches or even whole nations. You want an example? Look at America. How we have failed to teach our children the things of the Lord. Because we're teaching our children some things, aren't we? We're teaching them how to apostatize. We're teaching them 
how maybe TV time is more important than family time and how maybe Disney Plus is teaching our kids more and we can sing all these Disney songs, but how many hymns do our children know? Do our kids know? How many Bible verses? And it's not a legalistic thing to say, well, you need to have 10 Bible verses every, every week memorized. That's not the point. Is are we teaching our children, the next generation, in some intentional way? Look at America. Especially how many churches have turned from preaching the gospel. Puritan George Schwinnick said it this way, all in the church may hear the word of Christ, but few hear Christ in the word. How little is Christ preached today in America? Oh, there are plenty of faithful churches, but there are way more unfaithful. They do not teach Christ. They teach you how to be a good person. And they sure use the, the name of Jesus a lot, which is why we need discernment because, oh, well, yeah, they're talking about Jesus, right? That must be a good church. If we are not teaching Christ and the cross and how we must abandon everything in our life that we're clinging to, that has something that saves us. And that it's not just, well, you have to live a good life and be a good person. That misses the point. Our whole life is to be utterly abandoned of this world and to worship Christ. And those things that we do is our worship. And the third thing I want to look at is the consequences, <coughs> excuse me, the consequence and consequences of abandoning the Lord. So when Israel apostatized and abandoned the Lord, listen to the account the narrator gives. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. They were in terrible distress. The failure to disciple, the failure to receive truth, this is what it looks like as a consequence. This is what it looks like. And did the Lord not punish as he said he would? God does not tolerate worship of any other 
God's. He does not share his glory. And we may be thinking and sitting here, well, of course I don't worship any other God. I worship Jesus. I worship Yahweh. But the point isn't I have turned utterly from the Lord. It's what else, <coughs> excuse me, what else, else shares his glory with him? <coughs> Sorry, my cough is acting up, so forgive me. What else shares the glory of the Lord in your life? What else do we worship besides God? That's the point. Look at verse 16. <coughs> then the Lord raised up judges. Thank you. Then the Lord raised up judges. We've read <coughs> the account of the turning and the punishment and the apostasy. How they don't deserve anything. But verse 16, and the Lord raised up judges the great mercy of God. Someone said, profound commentary on the grace of God. The Lord owed them nothing. Yet his love for his people cannot be conquered. Verses 18 and 19. <coughs> Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The book of Judges is the cycle of apostasy, punishment, a cry of pain, and deliverance. This is the cycle <coughs> that we can expect in this book. All these stories. What happens? There's a turning and then the Lord delivers his punishment. And there's this cry of pain. Lord, save us. Help. We're afflicted. And then he raises up a judge, a deliverer. And the whole book of Judges is this downward spiral. Each story is worse and worse and worse and worse. Even the judges were so quick to think, these are the men we should emulate. These are the judges. These are the great men. These are not portrayed to be the great men. These are the men that God had used to save his people. 
but even they themselves were utterly flawed. Utterly flawed. And if you read through Judges, you see the statement made, and Israel had no king, and what comes next? And they did what was right in their own eyes. This isn't saying Israel had no king, like you know, King Saul, King David. This is saying Israel had no king. Israel had a king, Yahweh. But it was the king, the only king, that they rejected. So it's not saying they had no king. We're looking for the king to come, necessarily meaning like King Saul. But they had a king. Israel had no king because they abandoned the Lord Another name for the book of Judges is the book of the deliverers <coughs> or the book of the little saviors. And the question is for us, is this not what God did for us? Is this not what God did for us? And he didn't raise up a little savior. He didn't raise up a, just a deliverer. But he raised up the deliverer, the savior for a people who hated him. He raised up Christ. Jesus is the better judge. <clears throat> he is the one that death could not defeat he is the one that frees all who believe upon him from the tyranny, from the oppression, from the bondage of sin and the devil. We are free in Christ and he will never let us go. And the Christian does not go back into the captivity of sin again because sin has forever lost its dominion over you by the power of Christ's blood. And friends, that also means the church cannot die because it is Christ Jesus who is building this church. <clears throat> and how this looks is that he has given us now the power to obey. We can say, thank you, Lord, for saving us, for saving a people. And we call out to him and we say, yes, Jesus is the better judge. He is our king. He is our savior. But we don't stop there. It's he has given us now the power to obey. Not to gain anything, but because we have it all. So we walk in obedience and disciple the nations. Disciple our families. Disciple those who are around us. How do we be obedient? Now that Christ has saved us, we go and share this faith. Well, Lord, I don't know who to share to. Well, the question is, who has he put in your life right now? Who are you working with? Who's in your family? Well, I just don't feel like sharing with them. That is who the Lord has put in your life. And we pray that he opens your eyes to see the people around you, to be obedient and disciple. And if we are, as his church, to, to disciple the nations, it starts with us as individuals, fathers and their children, mothers and their children, grandfathers and their grandchildren, husbands and wives. It starts at home. 
It starts in our families. What a marvelous grace we have been strengthened by. And we worship by now going and doing. So we are not a generation that has lost and abandoned and forgotten the Lord. It's all in the Lord's hands. And there might be some of us very much like the Israelites who love our sin and do not want to drop any of our own practices or our own stubborn ways. And we need to repent and turn back to the Lord and follow his word and his will. Because is Christ not enough for us? Is his word not sufficient for his people? He is faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do call upon the name of Christ, our better judge, our Savior. Lord, I know how we need you. We need you, Lord, as fathers in this room, to give them wisdom and strength to disciple their children, and mothers in this room, to follow the leading of the husband, that they also disciple their children intentionally, and grandfathers with grandchildren, and and singles to put themselves under discipleship and to, to disciple others. Father, all of us, that is your will for us to disciple to pass on the faith, to preach the gospel. Strengthen us to do so as your church. Continually. Thank you, Jesus, that you have saved us from our sin. Yet while we were still sinners, you died for us. And what a hope we have in Christ alone. What a friend we have in Jesus. And call everything lay everything at his feet. We pray all this in our Savior's name. Amen.